although the bulletin says we'll be looking at verses 57 through 62, I'm going to step back and read actually verses 51 through 62 just to give some context to the passage, the paragraph that we'll be looking at this morning as we consider discipleship, as we consider what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 9, I'll begin reading at verse 51. When the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Would you bow with me in prayer again? Father, thank you for the living hope we have in Jesus Christ. And this morning, let us hear his words anew. We pray that with confidence, for we know that the word of God will accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth. So this morning, Lord, help us to examine what it means to be a disciple. And more than that, Father, I ask for you to work in our hearts so that as we consider the words of Jesus here, we will fall before him in humility and say, Lord, here I am. I'm yours. In the name of Jesus, I pray this. Amen. There's something about success stories that draw our attention. We love rags to riches. Because of that, there's a real temptation that when we share the gospel with someone that is not a believer, that we want to put a spin on it to say, if you follow Christ, everything in your life will go smoothly from here on out. If you're a baseball player and you follow Jesus, you'll start batting 300. All your troubles will be far away. But to do that would not be faithful to the words of Jesus. 
Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trials and tribulations, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. The cross is an instrument of death. He is saying to follow me means to travel the same way that I am traveling. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a theologian whose writings have greatly influenced me as well as his life as an example. His most well-known work is called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a book that he wrote on the Sermon on the Mount. And in the pages of that book, he wrote these words. When Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. That's the call to follow Jesus. Now understand that as we consider this call and following Jesus and the demands of that call to be a disciple, we're not talking about salvation. As we start this series on discipleship, there is a line, a fine line, that I want to be careful not to cross. I in no way want my words to be misunderstood as saying you in some way have to earn your salvation. I don't want it to be thought that I am teaching, well, if you suffer enough, then you will be saved. Or if you sacrifice enough, then you will be saved. Or if you, if you are growing in your discipline, then you will be saved. Let me be clear. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. That's consistent throughout the Scripture. Even in the Old Testament. If you look in Exodus 20 where the Ten Commandments are recorded, before commandment number one is issued, God says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and set you free from slavery. Now here are the commands. That order is crucial. Salvation, then obedience. Redemption, then obedience. We are not to obey that we might be saved. We are saved that we might obey. Jesus is clear that to receive the grace that is offered through him means that there will be consequences in our lives. That is because grace transforms. We're used to the phrase, just as I am. We sing that song as the, in the Baptist church, probably the, aside from Amazing Grace, the best well-known song in the Scripture, just as I am, without one plea. Well, indeed, Jesus accepts us just as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. Grace transforms us. Grace transforms us because it changes our desires. Within every believer, when you are saved, there will often be that conflict of desires where you desire to love the Lord and to follow Him. But temptation still rears its ugly head to pull us away from Christ. That's what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7 when he said, The things I want to do, oh, I don't do them. And the things I know I shouldn't do, I end up doing them. Who can save me from this wretched shape that I am in? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ. That conflict should not cause you to doubt your salvation. In many ways, that conflict of desire should remind you that you have received God's grace. Because one who is not a believer does not struggle internally with that conflict of what would God have me do and what is my sinful nature pushing me toward. 
Grace transforms us, not only our desires, but it transforms our allegiances. To follow Christ means that we have been saved by his grace. And his grace means that our allegiance is no longer to ourselves, but it is to Christ and Christ alone. And that's what brings us into conflict with the world. The world is those who do not believe. Those who do not recognize the sovereignty of God and do not seek him. The allegiance of the world is not to God, but to self. That's why we're in conflict with the world. Because the world does not follow God, and we do. Our allegiance to God is viewed as a threat. And, as we are already seeing in our culture, faith in God will be viewed something as dangerous. We see this conflict growing in the issues of sexual ethics and gender identity. For those who claim allegiance to God come into conflict with the world. An example of this conflict is seen in Luke chapter 9 verses 51 through 56. It's very clear that the time has come for Jesus to die. Verse 51, he says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's meaning it was time for Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus is a man knowing he is walking to his death. He has set his face. And as he is going along, he enters into this Samaritan village. A group has been set ahead to make preparations. I don't know what that entails. It could be they were sent ahead to find lodging, to find room and board. But they could not. In fact, verse 53, the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. I'm not sure what that entails other than the fact that his obedience to God brought him rejection in this world. Why did the Samaritans reject him and not receive him? Because of the way of the cross. Now the amazing thing is, is that James and John responded as we figured James and John, the sons of thunder, would. And what's amazing to me is not only did they come and ask Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven upon them? But that they thought they could. And Jesus turns and rebukes them. No. Don't call fire down from heaven. This is the way of the cross. This is what it means to follow Jesus in obedience. And notice they continue on their way to the next village. And it's there that Jesus brings the cost of discipleship into focus. The emphasis in verses 57 through 62 is the word follow. You'll note it in verse 57. The man says, I will follow you wherever you go. Verse 59, Jesus says to someone else, follow me. And in verse 61, another person approaches Jesus and says, I will follow you, Lord. Follow is a discipleship term. It's a word that denotes commitment and humility. To follow someone is to identify with them, not just to hear their teachings and think I will incorporate them into my life. To follow means you identify yourself with them and in humility say, I need you to lead me for I do not know the way on my own. To follow is to be a disciple. And to be a disciple is to follow Jesus. There's a difference in those who stand at the periphery and admire Jesus as opposed to those who are committed to follow. Think, if you would, of the, the crowds you see at a football game. If you look through that crowd, you'll see, generally speaking, three different types of people. 
There are those who are there, but they don't really care about what's happening on the field. Maybe they're there with a, a husband or a friend. They're there because, man, it's a, it's a pro football game, and what a chance to go see a pro football game and pay $20 for a hamburger. Who's playing? I don't know, but this, it's just a great environment. They're there. They really don't care. Then you have those that are, are there, but they're not really involved. In other words, they'll, they'll cheer and they'll watch, but you know what? It's okay. Yeah, they scored. Good job, good job. They don't really feel their heart race as the team is doing either good or bad. They're there, and they're just on the fringe. But then you have those. Then you have those that in 10-degree weather are wearing nothing but face and body paint. And they are living and dying with every snap of the ball. And you know, you know that this guy's life is his team. And whatever happens with that team impacts him until Thursday of next week. He's involved. I hate to break it to you, but Jesus wants us to be that fanatic. Not because of craziness, but because of Christ. He wants us to go into a world so in love with him that we show grace and gentleness and meekness and love and humility and that we love people in a radical way that shows people the cross. And I ask you this morning to examine out of those three types, which are you? Are you there but don't really care? Are you on the edge? You know what's going on but not really or are you saying, Jesus, I am yours? And if you would say, Jesus, I am yours, our Lord is clear about what that entails. And in the example of the three people, the three men who come up to him in this paragraph, the first in verses 57 through 58 shows us that the call of the disciple is to trust him no matter what. Notice as they're going along the road to the cross, someone comes to Jesus and their promises of unconditional allegiance. I will follow you. And note that there's no caveat here. Wherever you go, it's ironic because where's Jesus going? To Jerusalem to die. Lord, I'm yours wherever you go. And you would think that Jesus would look at this person and say, come on, you are the type we're looking for. I need people that are willing to say, I'm yours no matter what. But Jesus does not do that. He looks at him and he says, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. In other words, before you make this claim of broad allegiance, count the cost. It may mean discomfort. It may be times where things don't go as you think they ought to go. It may mean times of rejection as we've just seen in this Samaritan village. As a disciple, you're called to trust God even when the way is bumpy and rough and has detours you did not anticipate. You see, following Jesus is more than just adopting a philosophy. It's being with union on him, when in him on the way to the cross. Will we trust him when the road is hard? Will we trust him when there are unexpected griefs and trials and tribulations in life? 
If you would say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, I want to trust you more, my encouragement to you this morning would be to put into practice the frequently repeated command in the Scripture to remember, recall the promises of God. When the way is bumpy, trust Him by remembering that God is true to His Word. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you even to the end of the age. Remember what he said, I will work all things for the good of those that love me and are called according to my purpose. He has said, my grace is sufficient for you. And not only remember them, but put that into practice. Somewhere along the way, we have mixed this uh, American rugged individualism with Christianity, and we think we are saved by grace, but I have to be strong enough to walk the road on my own. And so often we think of our own strength to endure the rockinesses of the road that we travel. That robs God of glory and robs us of His grace. We need to know the freedom to come before Jesus and to simply say, Lord, the way is hard, it is rough, and I don't have the strength to do it. Help me, Lord. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians tells of a time where he encountered a difficulty so hard that he despaired of life itself. 2 Corinthians 1, he says, We despaired, we thought we were going to die. And this was to show us, Paul writes, that the strength was not found in ourselves, but in relying upon him who raises the dead. Do you know that? That grace that you don't have to muster up the strength on your own to face whatever circumstance you are facing, that he is with you. Remember his promises and remember his works. Remember what God has done. Think of David when he went to face Goliath. David met naysayers. When he told his brothers what he was going to do, they thought, David, you're crazy. Look at Goliath. He is nine feet tall. He is a, a, a combat warrior. David, you're 5'8", 130 pounds soaking, soaking wet. Now, I don't know if that was David's dimensions, but just for the sake of the story, go along with me. Who are you, David? What does David say? When I was watching the sheep, God enabled me to fight off the bear. When I was watching the sheep, God enabled me to fight off the lion, and God's going to enable me to fight off a giant. And so when he goes out on the battlefield there in the valley of Elah, he looks at Goliath and he says, I come against you. He calls him out. I come against you in the name of the Lord God whom you have defied. He remembered what God had done. Do you remember what God has done? If you're wondering, Lord, I don't know how this is going to work out, how we're going to make ends meet. Remember, God supplied manna to the children of Israel in the wilderness. When you're thinking, Lord, I am downcast and I am forsaken, remember that a prophet by the name of Elijah sat by a brook feeling the exact same way. And God supplies what he needs from ravens. Ravens bringing food to him. Remember the resurrection. Our problem is, is that we remember the problem rather than the promise. We think of the crisis rather than the Christ. And church, that's part of spiritual warfare. The enemy wants you and I to focus more on the problem at hand than the person of Jesus Christ. Spiritual warfare is training our minds to think of Christ. It's a battle. And it's not just a one-time battle, if you needed me to tell you that. 
You're going to come back to that time and time again. Because Satan is defeated, but he is also relentless. And he will come against you time and time again. And that's why we need to encourage one another and remember the promises, remember the the works of God, and to keep trusting him because that's what a disciple does. So remember, trust him. But the call of the disciples is also a call to change priorities. Jesus reaches out to the next man in verses 59 through 60. To another, he said, follow me. Jesus issues the call. And this man responds, not with a no. This man does not say no. But he says, let me first go and bury my father. This is a difficult, these are difficult verses to interpret. Because the man's request is reasonable. Let me go bury my dad. This would have been considered a religious responsibility of a son to bury their father. Jesus' answer, therefore, seems harsh. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, some try to alleviate the harshness by saying, well, the father wasn't dead yet. In other words, this man is saying, it may be years, I'm going to wait for dad to die, then I'll come. But there's no evidence of that in the text. Others argue that Jesus was speaking of, let the spiritually dead, those who are not following me, take care of their own dead. But as you follow me, there may be some some truth in that, but I tend to lean toward the fact that Jesus is using exaggeration to make a point. Now, the reason I say exaggeration is because when you read through the Scripture, there are commands to honor our father and our mother. Ten commandments, right? 1 Timothy 5.8 says, if you don't provide for your household, you're worse than an unbeliever. There are calls to take care of our parents, even in death. So therefore, I think Jesus is using exaggeration to make a point. He knows this man's heart. So what does he say? The priority must be the kingdom. But as for you, he says at the end of verse 60, Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's the priority. He is saying, examine what's important in your life. Does the kingdom of God and its proclamation fit in to your priorities? It's a call to examine our lives. Do our priorities align with the kingdom? Are we considering the cost of following Christ? There's a Briton by the name of Lord Kenneth Clark. He was a well-known star in British circles. He was an art historian who had a show on the the BBC that that people raved about. He was so well-known he wrote his autobiography. And in his autobiography, Lord Kenneth Clark spoke of visiting an old church. He was there as an art historian looking at the beautiful stained glass windows and the mosaics and just taking it all in. And he wrote, and I quote, My whole being was illuminated by a kind of heavenly joy far more intense than anything I'd ever known. And he admitted to being flooded with grace. So here's this man, an atheist having a religious experience in this church where he recognizes the grace of God. And then he writes, this created a problem for me. If I allowed myself to be influenced by it, I knew I would have to change my life. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. 
Those tragic words reveal the reality of following Christ. To follow Christ means I change course. I change my priorities. To follow Jesus is to change priorities to align with the kingdom. Then there's a third one, a third example. Jesus hears another man call out to him, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And this teaches us that a disciple is to keep a clear focus. Once again, the request does not seem unreasonable. I'll follow you, Jesus, but first let me go and say goodbye. In many ways, this is exactly what happened in the Old Testament when Elijah came and placed the mantle of the prophet on Elisha. Elisha broke up his plow, burned his oxen, and the village celebrated. He had a chance to say goodbye. It's not unprecedented, in other words. But what is unprecedented is Jesus' response. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He is saying someone greater than Elijah is here. Someone who calls for total commitment. And you cannot press ahead in following me if you are looking back at what you're leaving behind. You must focus in faith in being obedient now and pressing on into the future. We live in an age of distraction. According to statistics, 64% of all car wrecks are caused by distracted driving. Said the average student in a high school class can focus for two minutes before they're distracted to something else. Online, screen focus lasts for an average of 40 seconds before distraction comes in and something else grabs our attention. We live in a world where distractions are very easy to come by. And you add to that our temptation to want to look back at maybe things we left behind or regrets of things we did or did not do will keep us from pressing forward in the faith. A few weeks ago, along with a lot of golfers around the world, watched the PNC tournament. Now, it's a unique tournament because you have family members playing with other family members. You have a a daughter playing with her dad in this tournament and then a son playing with his dad. And it drew a lot of attention because Tiger Woods was playing with his 12-year-old son, Charlie. There's something very humbling about watching a 12-year-old that could beat the pants off of you on a golf course. Oh, his swing was beautiful, beautiful. They asked Tiger after the round, do you coach your son out on the course? He said, no, I'm his dad. I'm his dad first. If he has a question, I'll answer it, but otherwise we play. He did share, though, in an interview with Golf Digest that several years ago when Charlie took up the game of golf and started playing in tournaments, he noticed a problem that Charlie had. Charlie would hit a bad shot, lose his cool, and then play horribly the rest of the round. So Tiger said, I did talk with him about that. He said, I told him, son, I don't care how mad you get or if you're about to blow your head off, you remember this. The only thing that matters is the next shot. You've got to bring your focus to that next shot. Jesus is saying you've got to bring your focus to where you're going, not where you've been. You can't plow a field looking backwards. No matter what has happened, our focus must be like the Apostle Paul said, forget what lies behind and press on toward the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. 
The enemy will try to bring up our past, our failures, things we should have done, things we didn't do. And we have to say, Lord, by your grace, your blood has covered those things. Those are gone. I am pressing on to live for Christ today and tomorrow. And that is what I'm going to do. That's the focus of a disciple. Not to be distracted. Not to be like Peter on the waves who is walking and experiencing that power and that intimacy and then he's distracted by the storms. And what happens? He sinks. Now here's the good news. When Peter began to sink, you know what Jesus did? He didn't say, that'll teach him a lesson. He says that Jesus reached out and grabbed him. You see, even when we do look back, we have a Savior who would gently, sometimes maybe not so gently, but in love, we'll grab our heads and say, no, don't look at what I've already paid for. Look forward to where we're going. That's what a disciple does. A disciple trusts even in the hard times. A disciple has a change of priorities that reflect the kingdom. And a, a disciple focuses on Christ amid distractions. That's the call of a disciple. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me now, if you will. The call of salvation is to, to repent and receive the grace of God. But Jesus is very clear. He warns us to receive the grace of God through faith in me will change your life. And some of those changes may be challenging. So this morning I ask you, have you prayed to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Has there been a moment where you've recognized, you know, apart from God's grace, I am lost and will face eternity in hell? This morning, if you have any doubts, any questions about that, I want to invite you that when we begin to sing, if you'll come forward and just take my hand and say, Pastor, I want to know about what it means to follow Jesus. I'll ask you to have a seat. When the service is done, we'll take the time we need to walk through the gospel. And to I will do my best to explain how you can be saved. I know many in here are believers and you followed Christ for years. But I do know that over time, that which once burned brightly can become kind of a low, dull ember. This morning as you've examined your call to follow him, you recognize you're not a fanatic for Jesus. I want you to know that he is there ready to reach out to pull you closer. You don't come back to Christ by resolving to do better and pulling up your boots by the bootstrap and saying, I'm going to be a better person. You come to Christ by saying, Lord, help me. This altar is open. We have kneeling benches up here that were built for the purpose of, of people coming to pray. As the Spirit convicts you and leads you, let's walk in obedience. Lord, thank you for the grace you give us. Thank you that our salvation is not contingent upon our ability to obey, but it is contingent upon what Jesus has done on the cross. Now, Father, we pray this knowing that grace changes us. We are to count the cost of that change. So, Lord, I pray that you will help us to grow into fully committed disciples, trusting you, focused on you, living according to the kingdom. For it is in your name we pray. Amen.